Of course, we see the outrage in the United States right now. The, the death of George Floyd in Minnesota was a bit of a boiling point when it comes to racial discrimination in the United States, leading to peaceful protests as well as some not-so-peaceful not protests and ri riots. And the movement, if you wish to call it that, is spilling over now into other countries around the world, including here in Canada. How critical is this moment in history to changing the way people of color are treated, not only by police, but by everyone? And how important are our political leaders in helping to de-escalate the situation and, more importantly, provide some answer to the question of will real change be coming from this? Well, here to talk a little bit more about this with me, I'm joined on the phone by Adjunct Assistant Professor in Political Science at the University of Victoria, Dr. Janai Aragon. Janai, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me. Boy, do we have a lot to discuss today. Yes, that's, uh, to put it mildly, a lot to discuss. Um, first of all, I'll just kind of get your reaction to what has happened here over the past week. I mean, are you at all surprised to see how this has really taken off? Uh, you know, it started as sort of a, a, a you know, isolated uh, protest in Minnesota that's really just exploded, not only across the United States, but as I mentioned now, across the world. Are you surprised to have seen this movement really take on the legs that it has at this point? No, I'm not surprised at all. You know, everyone is already experiencing this public health crisis and has kind of um, low tolerance, low patience for things. And to have yet another unarmed African-American man um, murdered at the hands of the police, it just was gasoline on the fire of unrest. And, you know, this spring we've already seen Breonna um, Taylor uh, also um, murdered. We've had, you know, other African-American women shot on their porch or in their homes by police. In some instances, it was accidental. Um, people are fed up. And so we've definitely seen a resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it's a very strong social movement, and we've seen the ripple effects with, you know, people protesting in Australia against, um, you know, police terrorism, terrorism, not only black people, but indigenous Australians as well. So that the protests in other countries have kind of taken on a local spin, be it if it's, you know, the UBC president, Santa Ono, referring to anti Asian discrimination as well as discrimination against black Canadians. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, here particularly in British Columbia over the last two, three months, the uh, racism against Asian Canadians and, and, and the situations that we're seeing now. I mean, there's it, there's no shortage of racism here in this world that we live in. And it's really unfortunate, of course, that we have to have these conversations, but they're very important conversations to have. And I'm really happy that this movement is happening. It's been, you know, what, 100 plus years in the making. I know we've obviously seen movements throughout the course of that time period to improve the way that racial relations are in the United States. But I think more needs to be done. And clearly, the people in America feel the same way, that change is needing to be happening now more than ever. And when we look at our political leaders, or not our political leaders, I guess, when we look at the political leaders in the United States, they're really not helping to de-escalate the situation at all. They're almost, you know, like you had said earlier, to use your phrase, putting a little gasoline on the fire here. Is that what you're seeing right now is that the leaders in the states are just, I mean, we can speak about the one person really who is behind it. It's really not helping. 
you know, it's really sad to see the way in which these protests have become a lightning rod for partisan politics when what we really need to discuss is systemic racism against not just African Americans, but other people of color as well, be it, you know, Asians in the United States, Latinas, Latinos, Latinx people. Um, and so it's part of this conversation as well. And, you know, particularly the U.S. with the enslavement of black people, um, this movement is 400 years in the making. It really is. I mean, just the drama and vitriol that came with the New York Times 1619 project and how some read, you know, looking back at the enslaved and moving forward, how this was racist against white people, that it wasn't. And it, it's so common to see that when you talk about a particular ethnic group, there's always someone in the crowd, be it online or, you know, over the water cooler, who's like, well, why do they get a month, you know, be it Black Pride, um, you know, that sort of thing. And these conversations are uncomfortable, but it also causes us to hopefully have conversations about power, about privilege, about different types of identity, you know, our identities, so to speak, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how, how, in terms of the timing of this, do you think that this has a real chance to make a difference? I know, like, looking back to 2014 with the death of Eric Garner and the whole I Can't Breathe campaign that really started as a result of that, of course, it applies here to George Floyd as well. But there wasn't a really, there was a good conversation, I think, that was had in 2014, but it didn't really have any actual um, change that came out of it. Do you think that there's an opportunity for change here as a result of this movement that we're in right now, and particularly as it relates to it being an election year in the States, do you think that there is some real possibility of change? change from this? I think that there is if people go out and vote or mail in their ballots. Um, the I Can't Breathe, there's lots of graffiti across the U.S. with people who have used that phrase, um, I can't breathe. Uh, one of my, my, my entire family's from Southern California. And so one of my younger siblings um, sent me an image from West L.A., um, of a park and across the street of the park, it's a, you know, the graffiti noted, rest in peace, George Floyd. But it also said, um, I can't breathe. And I've been talking to my siblings lots, um, you know, during the public health crisis. And one of the things that became evident is there's more of that phrase turning up around um, Southern California. And then there's images on social media of elsewhere. As someone who's, you know, from the States, from Southern California, does this maybe take on a bit of a different meaning for you? I mean, being in Canada, we feel a little bit, my, myself personally anyway, I feel a, a little bit removed from exactly what is happening. I've been to the States and, you know, I, I feel, um, you know, different when I cross the border. You feel differently when you're talking about, you know, relation, uh, concerns around uh, guns and, and, and that kind of thing as well. But you just kind of have a bit of a different feeling when you go to the States, just in terms of, of how people are treated a little bit differently. Um, you know, we get it here in Canada, obviously, as well. There, we're nowhere close here in Canada just to being, you know, on equal terms, on equal footing when it comes to different mm -hmm. races and different genders and all of that. I, I get that. But it does feel different in the United States. Just does this take on any sort of a different meaning for you being someone from the U.S.? 
Oh, yes. I'm scared for my family. I'm scared for my friends. I've been checking in with colleagues um, across the U.S. who are colleagues, friends, and family who are African-American or are in um, epicenters of lots of uh, lots of social movement activity. And everyone's on edge, you know. The thing that I keep on hearing is 2020 is the worst decade ever, you know, and they're just referring to how these last barely six months feel like a decade. You know, we all seem to want a do-over. And I'm hopeful that we'll see change in November, that people will vote um, the current occupant of the White House out, and then we'll see more change moving forward. Because I don't think that we'll have enough institutional change under the current administration. You talk about mail-in voting. Do you have any fear right now that that right could somehow be taken away, given what the the president has been spewing when it comes to mail-in voting? Well, you know, intellectually, as a political scientist, I don't think that that will be affected. But you never know with this particular president. Um, it, It shouldn't be affected. You know, there's such a high concentration of... Uh, no issues, no problems with mail-in voting. And during the last four years when there's been fraud, um, I'd say about 95% of it has been committed by folks who are registered Republicans trying to stuff the ballot for their particular president Mm -hmm. or um, other issues. So voter fraud by mail is not very common. No, and I think the majority of people are are well aware of that being the case. But when you hear, you know, the president of the United States start, uh, you know, downplaying mail-in ballots, basically saying they're, you know, a a hotbed for for voter fraud and things like this, people tend to believe it. Not majorities, I don't think. The majority of people would probably disagree. But there are a lot of people out there who, you know, get their news just from Fox or just from the the president speaking when he gives his his updates to the country on, well, I don't know if you can call them updates, but when he gets, when he speaks, you know, that's pe- what people are listening to and they basically take everything he says and, and, and repeat it back, right? They're, they, they're like parrots in that regard. That happens out there. So I, I do think majority of people don't really, you know, worry too much when it comes to voter fraud, but there are people out there who have that belief and it, uh, it doesn't help when the leader of the country is, you know, feeding those concerns. Um, you Elections, of course, like you had talked about, it, it all that comes down to, to voter turnout and whether or not we can see some real change through voting. And you got to hope that that's going to happen. I guess, do you have any fear that that won't happen? Not because of uh, the lack of people wanting to vote, but I mean, as we go through a pandemic and when we see these large gatherings of mass people right now, a lot of concern on my, beha- my part that we could see the COVID-19 virus spreading a lot more and a lot more quickly uh, because of these large mass gatherings that we're seeing. Um, I guess you're not a medical expert, so maybe it's not really fair to ask, but I do wonder if there is some possibility of a lack of voter turnout because of a, a second wave of COVID-19. Oh, I think that's possible, and it could be a, a third wave because, you know, we will be voting on um, the first Tuesday in November. Um, so we could be at the point in which there's a second or a third wave, but with the option to be able to mail in um, your ballot, hopefully it won't be um, affected by it. And, you know, Jeff, for people who aren't um, Americans and haven't voted in the U.S., 
once you fill out your ballot, you sign your signature and date that you are attesting that you are the correct person. Um, and for people like me who are considered voters um, abroad, you know, there, there's also a, a, a form that I fill out that attests that I am who I say I am. And so it's not just like you have a regular envelope and you put, you know, the president's name or Biden's name in there and there's no recourse. You're attesting with this document that you are who you say you are. Well, I think the only excuse to not voting is um, you know, there, there really isn't one unless unless you're no longer alive. I think that's the only real excuse people have to not vote. Uh, there's always opportunity. It, it's it's been um, you know made widely available for people to go about having their voice heard and being able to cast their ballot. So hopefully there is no uh, reason that people can't get to the polls and can't cast their ballots. I'm sure that will be the case, but you just never know. Just given the world we live in and people's fear right now to go out in public and uh, to have their voice heard in that regard. I, I have some concern that that could be the case, but we're, all, we're still, what, four months away from that happening, so I'll, I'll, I'll call my concerns until then. Um, Janai, I guess just one more question for you here, because we haven't talked too much about how this relates back to Canada, um, but just, you know, as, a, as you're a political scientist professor uh, at the University of Victoria, you know, uh, here a place where we do have um, significant problems, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to racism against Asian Canadians, and, and, you know, there's no shortage of other races, of course, that are involved in this. How, how do we learn? What, what can we learn here in Canada from what we're seeing in the United States and apply it here? Well, I think one of the things that I'm seeing on social media, be it on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, people are asking for books and resources to discuss um, whiteness, white privilege, identity. They want, you know, suggestions for uh, black Canadian authors to read, that sort of thing. So I'm seeing a lot of good allyship in terms of people wanting to do right by others. And that's invigorating, you know, to see people who say, I want to listen, I want to learn. Um, because I think this is a moment to, you know, be a good ally and to understand what's taking place and why the protesters are so angry. Because this isn't just one event, it's a pattern of um, murdering African-Americans in the U.S. Well, Janai, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate you coming on. It's been a while since we last spoke, so it was good to catch up with you again. Unfortunately, not under the best of circumstances here, but uh, really appreciate your commentary, and, and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate your questions. You have a fantastic day. That was Janai Aragon, adjunct assistant professor in political science at the University of Victoria. Thanks so much for doing that, Janai. I really appreciate it.